Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you don't like the parade, run in the opposite direction. You will fast forward the parade. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I'm going to do my best to have a good show today. But if I don't, are you going to send the government to torture me? <laughs> you know, I, we get, I, I, I take it that you're referring to the news that the American Psychological Association had a role in... <laughs> In crafting the, the legal torture. and moral justification for torture I, yes. okay two two things one <laughs> it's a bunch of clinicians you know we have there's american psychological society and that's the real scientists the the apa is just a bunch of clinicians and those were the people who were helping torture but two they weren't really helping torture they were just as i as it said in the article they were trying to make it safe and ethical I feel like making making torture safe and ethical. Well, is, no, no, no. You know, they were trying to like justify all... it as safe and ethical. I, you know, I I didn't read that. I, so we <laughs> we both didn't do it, and when we did it, it was justified. You got to use hard clean time. clean torture instruments. You know, this is important. You got to make that all you were doing. Safe. You were just making it hygienic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm so David Pizarro from Cornell University, by the way. I, I've been giving philosophers a hard time about not engaging with the real world, but you know, maybe this is what happens when you engage with the real world. All of a sudden, uh, like there are people getting tortured in shadowy blacks, black uh, sites gonna, all over the place, gonna, and you guys you're just, just you're just hating because nobody asks philosophers to torture. The only torture <laughs> you guys you only give indirect torture by publishing really dense articles. A talk, yeah, like like, uh, like attending a philosophy talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably i think they thought that was too inhumane even the the cia kind of thought no 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 we're not gonna make that person go to an apa talk i do that's, yeah you know i do know that given our experience now and the years in which we've known each other and been recording this podcast it would be i know exactly what would torture you and that is just to scratch you down and, and read gettier cases to you over and over again and just yell at you I, is that knowledge <laughs> The fact is, just sitting and watching a talk, if we're all being honest with ourselves, is not something that you'd prefer to do over doing something else. Just in, you I mean, know. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I, you know, I've really, really stopped attending <laughs> most no, no, I conference talks. I mean, I go to conferences, and I just want to hang out with people. And, right. That's and, how we yeah. got to be friends is, the, is by not going to talks at, at conferences <laughs> that's right that was one of our first bonding uh bonding s- 
situations. But, you know, I feel like maybe this is just the bad. We're sending a bad message to young students. If you're there, I think there's good reason to attend talks um, when you're starting out. You do get to know the lay of the land and the field by. Yeah, but it is still torture sometimes, but at least you get to know, you know, who's particularly torturous. You know, it's funny. Psychology talks, the Q&A tends to be more constructive, even if you're trying to suggest alternate explanations or, or give another explanation for the person's results. It, it seems like you're more doing it as a way of being helpful rather than as a way of scoring points. And I, philosophy is better about this now, but there is still this idea that you go in there to like win in, in right. the Q&A. You want to ask that devastating question. I think philosophy students sometimes go, think that that's just how it works. And they, they think that a lot rides on their question and whether it flusters the, the speaker or whether the question really gives the speaker something to think about. And the fact is, nobody remembers who said anything at a Q&A. So there's right. no pressure. Nobody gives you know, a shit. I, I, I think you're, you're right in general that a lot of students think that, that questions are more about their a reflection of their intelligence and their... But I think there's this additional difference between psychology and philosophy. And to be fair to philosophers, I think that you guys sometimes handle questions a bit better. That, so in a philosophy Yeah, I think talk, that's true too. In philosophy talks, I think it's more common... Save perhaps for some subfields of psychology that have been heavily influenced by economics and philosophy, maybe. Um, but in general, I think in a philosophy talk, you can you can say you can say like, "Here's why I think you're wrong" in a question and answer session. And I've actually heard philosophers say, "Okay, you're right. I need to take care of that in my in my right. argument." <clears throat> so I'll revise my paper. But I think that one of the reasons it's actually psychologists are less likely to say that is if. if if you point point out something that's really damning, then we have to go back and like do ten more experiments right. or whatever. You know, you don't just have to add. You <laughs> can't a just change. You, know, yeah, you can't yeah. just put a footnote and say thank you to Tamara Summers for pointing out this particular yeah. flaw in my argument. <laughs> They're like, go and get another grant. So, <laughs> so we, we probably get a little more defensive about uh, it. Anyway, none of this relates to our topic for the day, which is. It's humor. We should say right up front, I think sometimes people, when we take on a topic, think us think that we're, if not experts on the topic, that we know a lot about the topic or that we've read and prepared extensively. We got somebody who challenged us on a Nietzsche point from yes. the previous episode. And, you know, just which is to, fair. I mean, it's fair as, totally long, fair as long as the challenge is taking into account the fact that we many times in that episode said we don't know shit about each <laughs> It may be a little irresponsible, but honestly, like this is what, you know, episode, what, 67 or something. And I ran out of expertise like on episode four. I mean, yeah. there's just no way you could just, you know, we're basically talking yeah. shit for That's why we do so many free will responsibility episodes. <laughs> it's, right. Right. it's like every once in a while, it's like, can we pick something that we actually know something right. about? So we're also sorry this is a, a week late. I think this always happens around the end of the semester that we have to take an extra week. I was feeling particularly unfunny um, because I've been at the end of the semester. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of, of work, but um, one of the things that I have to deal with is sitting on honor students defending their theses and dissertation students. Uh, and it's, 
I would almost rather be at a conference talk. Um, and, you know, God bless all of the students who are doing hard work and interesting work, but I feel like I'm getting my soul directly sucked out of me, like an yeah. hour or two of a question and answer session. I, I think that, that one thing that people need to know going into this game is that the grading, the fee- I don't often feel despair. But but that's the the time I do feel despair. Do you become an antinatalist when <laughs> I do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> actually like I I think that it was immoral for my parents to bring me into this world. <laughs> it was, but yeah, I mean, otherwise the job is fantastic, absolutely outstanding. No, um, that's great. But then and you know I I do learn a lot sitting on dissertation committees. You know, I just sat in on one that was all about zebra finches, and you know I know. Well, way more about zebra finches than I ever did before. So sometimes people say, like, oh, at least it was interesting. But, uh, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, I didn't want to know. I mean, I'm not going to do a podcast episode on zebra finches. Like, uh, you know. Well, I mean, first of all, I I actually did want, I was just about to pitch a zebra finch episode. <laughs> episode uh, 103. We'll just <laughs> that is what we'll, we'll be getting down to at that point. <laughs> zebra finches. They're not even black and white, you know. <laughs> What's the deal with zebra finches? <laughs> Okay, so humor, the topic of the show, um, and this is a hard thing to talk about, you know, and try to be funny at the same time. I mean, it almost makes really, you unfunny to talk about, it, you know. Yeah, I feel unfunny. I feel like the humor is dripping out of me. Like, right. I think there's a bunch of different questions when you're approaching this from a philosophical or psychological point of view. One is just the the function of humor. Humor. I think for both of us, right, plays just a central role in our lives and our relationships. It's almost weird that we haven't talked that much explicitly about humor, but I think that one of the reasons is it's so it's so central to to what I enjoy in life that it's weird to take a step outside of it. But it's one right. of those things where if if we didn't have humor and laughter. I I really like quite literally would become an antinatalist. Like I, I think that life right. would just be horrible. I mean, so much of my enjoyment comes from finding things that are funny. There's no person that I consider myself close to that humor isn't a big part of our relationship. If I don't think that I can make the jokes that I normally make and I don't think I can make fun of them and I don't think they can make fun of me, they're not my friends. They're not somebody I want to spend time with. My dad just, I grew up with my dad telling, he had, he has this amazing memory for jokes and he can sit there for an hour straight and tell jokes without repeating it. And we would just be in stitches. My, some of my fondest memories as a child was actually, um, and this tampered a bit of like the religious fervor that that was there in my family. But some of my best memories are actually (laughs) when we were, we would sit around and pray one of us my dad or my sister or i would just start laughing or say something funny right before prayer and we would just lose our shit and my dad who's normally very serious about religion would just he would lose his shit my sister would lose it and my mom is just but god bless her but she doesn't have a really funny bone in her body i mean she, I've not, right. like, she doesn't laugh at jokes at all and uh, she would be sort of 
frowning at us and, and finish the prayer to Jesus. <laughs> like ask for forgiveness for our laughter. And then I remember right around, you know, I don't have a bar mitzvah, but right around the time of becoming a young man, this is this marked the stage for me of transition from boyhood to adulthood. Willing Torching to a bar mitzvah that, or something? <laughs> that, that is funny. My, my dad, no. So like when I was 12 or 13 is when my dad started actually letting me hear dirty jokes. I had oh, yeah. no idea. I had no idea he was telling me the whole time. Whole uh, awesome world just opened up <laughs> to was, you. It was like I was like, I can't believe you've been saying this shit the whole time and like hiding it from me. You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember my life when humor wasn't a huge part of. You know, my mom was not a joke teller, but she loved. She was a big laugher, and she laughed. You know, she would take me to these 40s and 30s comedies and she would just be in tears and such and, and it's part of how i raise eliza like humor i was is, about to say you know yeah. how, how do you relate to to your daughter my, my feeling is because she's shown herself really since the beginning to be a very responsible kid is that nothing is off limits you know especially right. now she's just turned 11 you know there's no there's nothing i will that there's no joke that i censor but my fondest experiences with my own daughter are sitting and just laughing she'll sit and watch stand up with me or like i'll just put yeah. some stand-up bits on when we're driving or something she loves it i mean she doesn't you know you don't get like 80 percent of them you know but like you i don't i don't i, I don't censor i certainly don't play like really foul shit but i i refuse to right. censor and you know it helps because then they're re- they become really funny and more fun to hang out with themselves when you do and this. i mean this will get us to maybe one of the functions of humor but i think it just lets you deal with stuff better i mean there is a yeah. way of getting where comedy eases you into discussions of some really difficult things and if you learn to laugh about it, it's just life is just that much easier. I've been playing lots of Key and Peele skits for my daughter. Yeah, me too. For <laughs> yeah. same here, she, uh, she loves that gay marriage one where they have that counselor <laughs> yeah. come to talk to the, the black family of a. Now we all know why we're here. Cousin Delroy is getting married mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to a man, and we're in support, and uh, we just need a little help with the particulars of a gay wedding. What I done is I took the uh, initiative to get my friend Gary in here, who's, I mean, he's not really my friend, he's a coworker of mine who happens to be a uh, active member of the homosexual community. Oh. And he's gonna uh, give us some advice on what, you know, what, what to do. So, Gary, mm-hmm. what, what, can, what can we expect? Really, I just wanted to say basically that uh, a gay wedding is just like a straight wedding. Yes, yes, yes sir. So then do the uh, men wear dresses and then the women would wear suits? Um, no, 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 no. You would just wear exactly what you would wear at a, uh, at a straight wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, none of us are gay. So I assume that we would all sit then in the straight section. The, the straight section? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the uh, straight section, he means as opposed to the gay section. No, no, no. There's, there's, there's no sections, guys. But you, would just, you would just sit on the side of the person that you were friends with or that your family's members, just like in a straight wedding. So we just guess who's gay. Or not. Uh, When do we sing YMCA? Oh, sir, not during the ceremony. Okay. What about Macho Macho Man? Nope. I don't know where to buy no gay presents. Well, I I don't know what a gay present is. Um, Usually what couples do is they just just register at a store. Huh. Like a a straight couple would. Is it a gay store or...? 
just a regular store. Where do you get the euros to buy gay gifts? Are you saying euros? You wouldn't, you wouldn't use euros. Well, does the fake priest look like a real priest or like a nun? It's gonna be a real priest. Or? No, there's no or. Is it a sexy boat captain? Then it takes his clothes off. Oh. What? No, no. Do we throw something other than rice? Like what, sir? What would you throw other than rice? I don't know. I don't know. Couscous. <laughs> that is good. Which Wait, ones maybe... have you been playing for her? I was losing my shit at the Hitler story. Have you seen the Hitler story one? Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's just this one line that just makes me lose it every time. And this guy is, you know, he's sort of like a very effeminate Nazi. And he's telling this other Nazi this story. It's in, obviously in World War II. Anywho... I'm buying some bread. Hitler's buying some bread. Um, I must. So uh, I'm. I'm assuming you've got a better Hitler story. But no. But then maybe I... don't interrupt. Yes, sir. So I give him a salute, and he gives me one of those half Hitler salutes. You know, down low, very cool. Right. You know. Right. Here's what you forget. Yeah. He doesn't say Heil Hitler. Uh-huh. Isn't that funny? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is – we'll get into some of these theories, but one of them that is connected with Freud is this idea that humor provides us relief uh, in the form of a release of psychic energy. You know, sometimes things that are really tough to talk about, it's a strain when you're thinking about them, and then when, it, when you can add humor to it, it's this – Ah, and I think that's right in terms of child raising, that it's extremely valuable tool as a way of addressing some of life's really, really hard issues. Right. And sometimes I wonder, though, if it's just a, it's a, if it's a relief or a tension release only for people like us who find things funny. <laughs> you know, I think that is really does work that way. Like if you're in an awkward meeting to say something that's funny, but every once in a while, there'll be that one person who you're just like, wow, they didn't laugh at all. Like maybe there is just no release provided to that person. They just and they pissed. never do. I can't relate to this person. I can't relate to them as much as I can't relate to serial killers or something like that. I have no idea what it's like to, to go through life because I, you know, I don't know anybody well who, who's like that. Who's just humorless. Yeah. yeah they probably yeah. just don't talk to us very much. So. And it is um, how you and I, and then we should maybe go to a break and talk about some other than just our sto- stories. It's how you and I, without really having any connection or knowing each other, at all besides the fact that we overlapped at some conferences it's like you see this person you see they have a similar sense of humor to you and that's really all it was plus right and there's a playfulness that comes across even when people aren't trying to be funny and we can talk about this but it's sort of this this playfulness with ideas that i think is probably closely related to humor that yeah. that some have argued might actually be kind of a common a commonality to the mechanisms that are underlying like a joy of humor and accepting new ideas but okay all right <laughs> all right break. Uh, let's take a break and we'll come back
Let me, let me understand this, because I don't you know. Maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, before we get into the meat of the topic, uh, we just want to take a moment to thank everybody for the support once again for the iTunes reviews, for the t-shirt sales. We had finished one campaign of selling t-shirts and we restarted it again and sold a bunch more t-shirts. So thank everybody. Thank you to everybody who supported us. If you want to continue to support us, you can go to our support page, donate, uh, or go to the Amazon link and buy all your stuff through Amazon. And if you'd like to get in contact with us at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards or email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We do read every email. Yeah, and you can comment on our Facebook page, and we'll try not to get so defensive. I, I think both of us had a little... For me, it's always the anti-natalists. They bring out like a bad side of me where I, 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 you know, I know what they would say, which is that I'm just afraid of the truth as a breeder, and so that's why I get so upset by it. This is the sort of unfalsifiable nature of, of anti-natalism, but still please feel free to comment. And if we get a little pissy in response, we don't really feel that way. So we should thank uh, Sam DeBrito. This, I think this is the thread that got us both, both yeah. a little defensive. But um, Sam DeBrito from the City Morning Herald wrote a nice piece. Um, so Very thank nice. you to him. <clears throat> and, but it was on our episode on antinatalism and on antinatalism in general. It was just a hard week. I don't really care about antinatalism. So we're going to now try to break down theories of humor. And, and let's just get straight about the, the questions that we're interested in. So there's questions about the function of humor, which we've talked about as a way of cementing social bonds, I think. Um, there's questions about just why humor exists at all you know the evolution of humor what the mechanisms behind it are because it does seem like we're the only species that laughs in i mean this is the way that i this is you know this question of why we have humor um is one that i lecture on in my intro psych course because it is just to me a fundamental mystery like why we would respond with mirth to certain statements and why we laugh at them. So it just seems very odd if you were an alien and you came to study human beings and every once in a while somebody would say something and people would kind of mildly convulse and, you know, turn up the corners of their mouth um, and make this sort of staccato exhaling sound. <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, why? What is it? What is it that that gave rise to that human response and you know what's funny may not be universal but the fact that people find things funny does seem to be universal right and that's the second question is what are the things that we find funny what are the things that elicit this reaction and, and one of the things we can talk about also when we're talking as, as we move to the question of what actually makes things funny is to what extent we can talk about it as a kind of objective phenomenon. Like we might say, I think obviously humor is subjective, but in I think in the way we approach it when we talk about it non-abstractly is that certain things really are funnier than certain other things. Louis C.K. Like really objectivist. is funnier than <laughs> Dane Cook. Right. I was thinking about this earlier. There's, It's very similar to 
the psychology of morality and maybe the philosophy of morality. Because you can ask yeah. those, you can ask the very same different questions about uh, morality, which is, you know, so what's obvious is that at some level, people universally think that there are, that, that there is right and wrong. But then right. when you look at the content of the morality, it really varies across culture. Um, and so in that sense, you can separate those two questions um, when it comes to morality. But you can also, just what you just said, which is that, you know, people do seem to spontaneously believe their moral claims to be true. And, and that might actually be true of, of humorous things. There's, you, I think we admit that they're that probably humorous objective but in the moment when we're laughing or when we're not laughing, I think it's especially evident at things that are not funny to us where we right. say, no, that's just not funny. I mean, I can it's sort like, of But those people a- laughed at it. So, you know, like some, you know, Adam Sandler movie in the last 10 years or something like yeah. that. Well, people like Cabin Boy. <laughs> right. Freddie got fingered. You know, like, <laughs> that's exactly the right analogy. And it's the right analogy in a lot of different ways. Like, while there's no single theory that can capture what's morally right or what's morally good, there's also no single theory that can capture what's funny. But every theory, not every theory, but the, every good theory does shed light or, or capture part of the truth. Right. There is one difference, though. I mean, and that is what the criteria for a successful theory would be. And the difference between, say, a theory of moral responsibility or or, or morality in general, you know, I, I can hold a, a normative theory that and you show me the data that people don't think that I'm right. My theory, a normative theory, is playing a very different role than a theory of humor. Theory of humor is actually like, it, even though philosophical theories of humor have been proposed, the criteria for success is that, in fact, people will find the things they say they find funny. So if everybody what's actually the, What's didn't the criteria laugh, of success for, for say, moral, moral theories, normative theories? Well, it's, it's definitely not intended to just a, philos- a normative theory is definitely not intended to capture intuitions. I think that's so no, I think they are. That's how they argue for their the theories. Well, it's not always intended. So let's just say it's a different problem if if uh, intuitions conflict. You could, as a consequentialist, really, really believe that most people won't have the intuitions that you have. But and fun- still believe it to be right, correct theory. You can think that, but you could also think that I don't care what anybody thinks. I think that a carrot top is real is funny, and everyone's just wrong about not thinking that carrot thinking that he's not funny uh, and annoying, right? I mean, so you can say that, but I I just don't know what basis you would have for that besides ultimately appealing to another person's intuitions about what's good and what's bad. In. But but right. I, but but so, at the same time, I, like I think ultimately it boils down to the same thing. But but it's a lot farther to travel with morality than it would than it is with humor. You can't really begin to reason with somebody that something is funny. There's just that exercise. It's the problem with this episode a little. Just that exercise sort of drains the humor out of uh, totally. the thing you're trying to convince a person is funny. Right. So I guess maybe maybe then I was just pointing to a distinction between humor theories seem more psychological to me in that in that you can ask the question, what do people in fact find funny? I, I agree that humor theories are more transparently 
psychological. But in terms of the way that you argue for a normative theory and the way you argue for a theory of humor, there's a very similar, right? You come up with uh, this general principle and then you apply it to particular cases. I mean, maybe the, just the difference that I'm pointing to is a, a psychological versus a philosophical theory of humor, where a psychological one wants to account for everything people think is funny and wouldn't exclude certain things as not funny based on the theory, right? The goal, the goal of the psychological theory is descriptive. I guess the, the sort of ironic thing that I want to point out is, and yet, the way you argue for a specific theory is the structure of those arguments seem similar. And now we're off. Now we're off on a tangent, although yeah. it is relevant to, you know, perhaps being a podcast about ethics. We had to draw that parallel, maybe. <laughs> although I will say this, it would be a lot weirder if there were a theory, humor, that thought like, say, Kant or a pure consequentialist, that there was one sort of general principle that could generate um, a procedure to determine what is funny, like the categorical imperative or like a, a calculation of maximization of hedons. Like so they're really, you know, they would really, they might be wrong, like you think they're wrong, but they think that that's how you might actually determine for any given act whether it's moral or not. But, but, but again, I, I think there's a difference between saying you're right and other people are wrong and then giving a basis for that claim. Um, and this is true about humor, obviously, and maybe less obviously also true about morality. I mean, there might be ways in which you can appeal to, well, they didn't, they're not sufficiently informed of the relevant empirical facts or something like that, but you could say that about comedy. Well, of course they don't get this because they don't understand British customs or they've never had a job or but or. that's that's so i'm saying something slightly different i'm saying that somebody like kant actually believed that the categorical imperative is what you ought to use to generate uh, you know but whether or not something is moral right i know that is the procedure that. okay yeah he he believed that so my claim here is simply that you were saying that the structure of these theories is often the same, but they, I don't know of any theory of humor that would po even posit that there is a singular principle that could generate it. So right. they might both be wrong, but I just don't know of any. No, I mean, like I, humor is. I, I don't say that the structure of the theories are similar. I say that the structure of the arguments for the theories are similar. You're appealing to the same kinds of things in both cases, judgments about particular cases, and trying to generalize from those judgments. So what you're saying is that you will proceed with a the theory of humor as deontologists proceed with their theories of ethics. <laughs> no, and also consequentialists. I mean, again, there's, there's, there's a few steps in the middle where you're trying to get straight on the empirical facts. Um, but again, I think this is true maybe to a lesser degree with humor. Like, you need to understand context in order to understand whether something's funny or not. And I don't know what else you do in ethics besides that. You know, like, you could well, try to debunk I mean, it, but for reasons we've talked about, I mean, you could try but, to debunk it. But there's it a whole, it. I, I mean, and I think we should probably move on to theories yeah. of humor, but there are requirements for consistency, for instance, in any decent theory. I know that you hate it, and you're going to say that it's wrong, but that doesn't mean that people don't think that their ethical theory ought to be consistent. All right, well, let's just move on to, to actual comedy, maybe.
Let's just lighten up the conversation. Shit's getting serious. Way too, too serious. <laughs> if you had to give up humor or sex, I, I think I'd give up sex, to be honest. Yeah, I'd give up sex. I mean, can you still Maybe we're jerk off? Motherfuckers. I mean, <laughs> no, that is sex. That counts as sex. Sex with someone I love? <laughs> yeah. Then uh, screw it. I'll be, you know, a priest or whatever. Unless priests can <laughs> masturbate. I'd be a rabbi, dude. Come on. Rabbis, they have very fulfilling sex lives. A woman right out of the mikveh, their wives. I remember somebody describing that to me as just a really hot sexual experiences. Having sex with your wife after she comes out of the mikveh. What's the mikveh? What the it's like something you I go in know. after your period. Just it's like a, it's more formal, like it's like a clean. You know, I mean, men can go in it too, but it's like, yeah, I, I don't know if there's like mikveh porn or not, but but I bet there is somewhere. Uh, yeah, I'm a goy. We use baby wipes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's disgusting. So you've had sex with people when they just they haven't come out of their mikveh yet. but um let's let's go with jokes because that's my at least my first experience with humor was my dad telling me jokes and and these really like my we're gonna have clips of what movies and stand-up comedians but so much of early humor is about jokes i'll tell you a joke savine told me that um i've never been able to get out of my head because it's so stupid so dumb. This like, a proper theory of humor has to account for why I still think this is funny. What's small, purple, and dangerous? Uh, a grape with a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a theory of humor has to account for why that's funny, actually. <laughs> uh, no, no, it has to. <laughs> Your therapist has to account for why you find that funny. I mean, is it because you expect it to be something like a dick and then it turns out to be a grape? No, not at all. This is like a f- innocent first grade joke. It's just why a grape with a machine gun is hilarious. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I think as a kid, you know, there's that there's that period as a kid where you find things funny just purely based on the absurdity of it. I, I found that less funny as I've gotten older. So like the like the greatest example of that, no offense to your grape joke, is far side. Right? It ha it's this just pure bit of absurdism with with no other end as besides the sort of clever absurdity. So that used to be like my favorite thing in the whole world, the far sides. And now it's like, yeah, ha, you know, that's good. That's funny. Oh, that's I well I don't think that the far side is is absurd in at least in its good humor i think that sometimes they're just to have dinosaurs smoking cigarettes and say you know the real reasons dinosaurs went extinct it, you know that was timely and fun uh how entomologists die um and have like a, a professor in the office like with his legs like, pointing to the ceiling all curled up like he died like a bug it was kind of funny it's not absurd it's, it's you know well, right. The joke is begins and ends with the cleverness of the construction and the like. You know, I think Stephen Wright's humor is like this. Again, something I loved as a kid and just have no real attachment to now. Yes, yeah, he actually one of my face. So I think that the elegance of the one-liner to me to be able to have to you know, I think. If anybody tries to construct a one-liner, you'll see, I think, what the achievement that is made. So uh, one of my favorite 
actually one-liners. This is from Stephen Wright, and I'll play it right now. It's my birthday recently. For my birthday, I got a humidifier and a dehumidifier. <laughs> Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. So the construction of a one-liner, I think, is just the wittiness in uh, in getting a full joke in such a short period of time. Like I think they're hilarious. Like uh, Mitch Hedberg is another great one. Right? Maybe I am just appreciating it in in a more sort of intellectual way. But I, but I do lose my shit with Mitch Hedberg when he says, you know, I don't have a girlfriend. I just know a woman who would be really pissed if she heard me say that. <laughs> That's funny. So okay. Like, I think those two things are different. Like the humidifier joke, which was also a favorite of mine growing up. I mean, he's a Boston comic. And, you know, like, I felt like a total. No one gives... People do give a shit because Boston, everyone sort of wishes they were from there. So the, say next, he's a, he's a white. He's a white. Well, it sort of goes without saying. The, but, but like, there's nothing beyond the cleverness of that joke. I think that is a more of an aesthetic appreciation of how well the joke is crafted then I'm responding to it. The girlfriend one, even though it's also a one-liner, is at least there's something about it that I can connect to in a way that I can't connect <laughs> to the, 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 the humidifier joke other than at a distance. I mean, this is what I've learned is like I don't – the kind of jokes that keep me at a distance are not the ones that I find as funny. Yeah, I, I, though I'll, I, do, I do find a lot of these one-liners funny, although Stephen Wright himself – is way hit or miss but i'll tell you one thing maybe that's in the vein of what you were saying about absurdity that um i used to like and again i think we're going to commit sacrilege a couple of times maybe for people who are big fans of these of these comedians but i used to find um robin williams sort of hyper coked up random humor to be funny yeah um when i was a kid i mean it was so entertaining and now i just where is home for you or did you come from a home the people of the institution, Tommy. <laughs> if you haven't taken your medication yet, it's going to be fine. <laughs> They're back at 12. Back at 12, yeah. No. How are you, Mr. Williams? I'm real fine. I'm... <laughs> Look at this thing. Look, flipper. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's excruciating. It's, it's just to think that, that humor is the ability to quickly say things that pop into your head as absurd as they might be with no connection at all to the last thing you said it used to I, I don't know what i don't know what happened but yeah i i didn't but i i mean i feel the same way about robin williams yeah. yeah i mean i don't even think that's sacrilege except that he just died recently maybe but except for the dude. i i, I kind of never really liked robin williams and always found it like i, I find it bewildering that everybody thought that he was so f- funny it's so random and so like i just the high energyness of it that never appealed to me in a way that Stephen Wrights did really appeal to me. I like Robert. He seems like an interesting guy and I like some of his acting performances, but I've never found him funny and just interviews. He's just an interesting, he seems like a very thoughtful and, and interesting guy, but, I, but, but never. Here's another sacrilege though. Uh, speaking of absurdity is Monty Python. Not a huge fan right. of Monty Python, you know, like again, some of the skits in that same way that Far Sides and Stephen Wright are very funny, but I, uh, yeah, I just, it's, it, it doesn't do it for me. It's uh, too random. It's too random. I, actually, I feel like I'm, I'm giving up a lot of sort of geek credibility by saying that, that I didn't care for Monty Python that much because so, there's so many people, yeah. um, 
who who love it. I actually got to meet and hang out with John Cleese once, and I felt really? bad that I couldn't be more. He would come every once in a while to Cornell. He had like this this appointment, um, this honorary appointment. He'd come and he'd just want to meet with just a few professors every year. So I got to meet with him one year, and it was it was great. But some of my friends would have been just like saying from from memory full Monty Python skits because they think it's the most hilarious thing in the world. And, and I was just like, eh. you know what though? I love faulty towers. Again, there are two different animals, yeah, faulty towers and Monty Python. Monty Python is this great whimsical absurdist all about philosophy. You know, there's a lot of philosophy and ideas in it, but there are no characters you can get attached to. And that's, you know, Faulty Towers is just not like that. They're two totally different kinds of things. And if I have to right. pick John Cleese things, it's Faulty Towers, no contest. I think Faulty Towers is great. Manuel. I never watched it. There is some degree of absurdity that I still find funny um, and sort of randomness that I find funny. That There is some degree of randomness or absurdity that I think sprinkled in makes for good for good comedy. And maybe... But not as an end in itself, I guess, is the... Not as an end in itself. I, yeah. I, and I'll, I'll put in a little clip to the first Hannibal Burr's thing that I ever saw, which was his little thing, his little bit on pickle juice. I have a situation in my apartment right now. I have a surplus of pickle juice in my apartment. Too much pickle juice. After the pickles are gone, I don't like throwing out the pickle juice. It just feels wasteful. So lately I've been dipping my fingers in the pickle juice and I flick it on my sandwiches for flavor like that. Like, how many flicks does it take to properly flavor a ham sandwich? Between 7 and 11, depending on how big your fingers are and how long you leave them immersed in the pickle juice. There's lots of variables. I studied this. I get- um, and that's pretty random. It's funny. Like, I, so far you've played a bunch of things that I don't think are that funny. Like, and I love uh, Hannibal Buress. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, so... I thought we had this very similar sense of humor, but not so far. Well, I played Robin Williams as an example of somebody who's not funny. That's true. The only thing I've, we agree only on thing that. I've played is a Stephen Wright one-liner. Right, that's true. <laughs> and we disagree on the far side. But One, one of the f- famous theories of humor that's been proposed is the superiority theory that Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher from the... 17th century defended and here's a quote that he gave the passion of laughter is nothing else but sudden glory arising from some sudden conception of eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmity of others or with our own formally so the idea is we laugh at things out of this sudden glory we get for knowing that we're better than the objects of the humor while that does describe a certain amount of comedy it goes without saying that it doesn't describe all comedy. And again, it's it's actually like, I, I think if anything, I subscribe to an anti-superiority theory where I really don't like jokes that you, place you the joke teller. Norm, you, you mean as your own personal normative theory? Because <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of people that agree with me on this, but not definitely not everybody. This divides certain people. This I'm just speaking for myself. If, if, if the humor places the joke teller or the character in the comedy or the... Uh, above the targets of humor, then chances are I'm not going to like it. I, I like self-reflective, self-deprecating humor, not I'm better than you humor. No, you know, I, I agree. And there are some comedians that that 
I like I know the world thinks are funny. Their their primary their primary method seems to be to place themselves above others and make fun of others. And so one example, this is the other example of sacrilege that I was going to give is, you know, I kind of almost hate to say it, but I never really liked George Carlin that much. And I, I just found that his bits were just full of arrogance. Like they were always pointing out how smart he was and how dumb other people are. Don't I don't find it that funny, especially, de- you know, depending on who he's talking about. But there's this bit that he has about, about the square states, about putting putting all kinds of bad people just filling up the square states with. You take all these heavy breathing fun seekers, and you stick them in Wyoming, and you let them suck, fuck, and fondle. You let them blow, chew, sniff, lick, whip, gobble, and cornhole each other until their testicles are whistling. Oh, come all ye faithful! Yeah, no, um, we talked in the first run through of this, we talked about George Carlin. I've also felt that. And that is, I'd say, of all the things that that I don't like to publicize that I don't like, that might be like there's something about George Carlin that you're not allowed to not like. And I don't and I don't get it because I never found him funny. And yeah, looking at some clips since we've talked about it, it's just mean. It's just essentially insulting the intelligence of a vast majority of the American people. I guess when he's when he's good, and this is, you know, this is this idea of punching up that Gary Trudeau mentioned with the I think totally inappropriately when it came with the in the context of of Charlie Edbo but it's like when he tackles the government politicians in power or or something like you know is that is in a position of great power over him and enjoys a great popularity but a lot of George Carlin is just bashing just how like a fat people are and yeah. uh and then like maybe the best, and I mean this in the sense that this is probably the example I, uh, of a person that I actually like, but it's it's the kind of humor that I don't respond to as much as everybody else does, like John Stewart, which is you know it's it's just ridiculing the, a bunch of people, and again, it's he's not wrong, right? It's like the yeah. Big Lebowski thing; he's not wrong. It's just <laughs> sometimes you can be an asshole, you know. And again, I think John Stewart ha- gives this "I'm a good guy." kind of aura in the way that like Carlin and Bill Maher doesn't like. So, 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 so it's a little bit off the hook from that, but they pick on easy targets. I mean, how hard is it to make fun of Sean Hannity and and Bill O'Reilly? Who themselves aren't, aren't even funny. They pick on, at least, you know, at least John Stewart is trying to be funny when he picks on other people. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and, and in fact, this is, this is one thing we were saying, which is, so, so I want to get into some of the thing people that we genuinely unapologetically find funny. But here's a great example of for a couple of reasons of a kind of humor that I don't like. And this is Jerry Seinfeld. I love airports. Feel safe in airports. Thanks to the high caliber individuals we have working at X-ray security. <laughs> How about this crack squad of savvy, motivated personnel? The way you want to set up your airport security is you want the short, heavyset woman at the front with the skin-tight uniform. That's your first line of defense. You want those pants so tight, the flap in front of the zipper has pulled itself open. You can see the metal tangs hanging on for dear life.
Then you put the bag on the conveyor belt, goes through the little luggage car wash. <laughs> then you have that other genius down at the other end looking in the little x-ray TV screen. This Einstein has chosen to stand in front of x-rays 14 hours a day as his profession. <laughs> looking in that thing. I, I have looked in that TV screen. I cannot make out one object. He's standing there. What is that, a hairdryer with a scope on it? That looks okay. Keep it moving. Some sort of bowling ball candle. Yeah, I got no problem with that. Just, you know, we don't want to hold up the line. So there's a couple of things, you know, listening. I, I've never liked Jerry Seinfeld, just ever. Like, I, don't, I didn't like the show. I didn't like, uh, and I thought his stand-up comedy was just the worst kind of observational humor. But there's also, which I didn't, really remember there's a kind of meanness to it like talk about not punching up here's jerry Seinfeld just picking on airport security people and like making fun of their lot their intelligence level for picking a job i i i, I remember him as the guy who always says what's the deal with you know uh, <laughs> those airplane peanuts uh, yeah i'm sitting in the middle seat doesn't that side like that, that i always thought was just lame but there's an element of almost just aggressiveness to it. And of course, it's also not, you know, he's a great example of humor that's not personal. It's not self-reflective in any way. It's like the, the he's kind of the anti-Louis C.K. or, or Bill Burr, uh, people that I really like, you know, because it's just, it's purely like external. I am making fun of the world. Uh, you know I'm, what's uh, a sort of ironic is, is how Seinfeld sort of prides himself on not cursing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's like, well, you, you don't curse, but you're fucking misanthropic, man. And I, I, I did like the show, but but Jerry Seinfeld was just put up with him. It sort of was like the, the funny characters that revolved around him was was why I thought it was right. Uh, it was the George funny. Costanza, yeah, and, and, and precisely because he was a character that you could connect to and relate to, and sort of relate to his frustrations and right. his flaws it's just like there's a distance with and it's funny because larry david who's obviously very closely connected with with seinfeld and the show and who costanza was based on i i really like i like i think that that show is very funny so here's a clip uh of one of my favorite curb your enthusiasm scenes hey larry hey i want you to meet my daughter emma hi. say hi to larry hello. hi i'm hi. emma I am, but nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How come you don't have red hair like your mom? My dad is blonde. <laughs> Do you want to give him a hug? Yeah, sure. Oh, He's been dying wow, to meet you. Really? Okay. All right, nice mm -hmm. to meet you. Go nice get something to, to eat, okay, sweetie? I'll okay. see you in a minute. Oh, boy, what a sweetheart. She's great. Thank you. That was yeah. really sweet of you. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. We should get this thing going soon, yeah. huh? So listen, I might be a few minutes late getting back from lunch, so I have to take Emma to the doctor. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, is she okay? Yeah, she just has a rash on her pussy. I'm going to get the table read started, okay? Good luck. Yeah, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. Some people can't handle it, you know, because of its awkwardness. Um, and I can get that. Like, you know, there's some, there's, you have to be really comfortable with, with somebody who's willing to put themselves in such awkward situations. But here is, and I think to your point, the difference between, they're both mis misanthropic. Uh, yeah. Seinfeld and and uh, Larry David, but 
Larry David, as you say, like puts more of himself in it. Yeah, it feels he's more not, personal. Yeah, he's not like Jerry Seinfeld's misanthropy was sort of antiseptic, and you could tell through his his comedy routine, as you say, he's putting distance between himself and everybody else. Larry David, you get the sense that he wishes he could put distance, but he's constantly, you know, getting and and he really he he doesn't want to be an ass, but. He, you can't right. help, but in right. these very deeply interpersonal situations, just emerge as sort of an ass, and then he regrets it. And you know, I mean, when did this last time Seinfeld's character regretted anything? Right. Know? Part of the thing is Larry David very rarely wins. Uh, right. And I think there is, this is what I mean, like the anti-superiority, a key element of humor. It doesn't have to be that you're so self-deprecating as to become a kind of self-hatred like you know, Woody Allen in some moods. You know, so someone like Louis C.K., it's not that he doesn't make fun of other people, but he's as hard on himself. If That's hard the thing. You're sort of allowed to be, I think. You're, you're allowed to be harsh. You know, allowed is a strong word, but it's much more palatable to when, when you've spent all this time talking about how, what a fuck up you are. It's almost even more powerful to point to other people fucking up as right. a funny thing once once you've granted that you are. Yeah, and you know, this is why, you know, some of my favorite Louis C.K. bits are about his daughters. And, the, you know, the, <laughs> some of the best ones of those are him just making fun of his daughter. So I give her a Fig Newton just to immobilize her, just to stop it, because she loves Fig Newtons. I go, here, honey, have a Fig Newton. She goes, they're not called Fig Newtons. They're called... Pig Newtons. And I go, no, they're not. They're called Fig Newtons. And right away in my head, I'm like, what are you doing? Why? What is to be gained? What do you care? Just, yeah, Pig Newtons, fine. Go ahead. Good luck to you. Go through life. See what kind of job you can hold down with shit like that clanging around in your head. I don't care. I'll be dead. But for some reason, I engaged. No, honey, they're called fig news. She goes, no, you don't know. You don't know. They're called pig news. And I just, I, I feel this rage building inside. Just Because it's not that she's wrong. She's three. She's entitled to be wrong. But it's the fucking arrogance of this kid. No humility. No decent sense of self-doubt. She's not going like, Dad, I think those are Pig Newtons. Are you sure that you have it right? She's not saying that. She's not going like, Dad, I'm pretty sure those are Pig Newtons, which would be a little cunty, but acceptable. I could deal with that. She's giving me nothing. Now, you don't know. Those are Pig I'm like, really? I don't know? I don't know. Dude, I'm not even using my memory right now, okay? I'm reading the fucking box. information how do you fuck with me on this you're three and i'm 41 what are the odds that you're right and i'm wrong what are the sheer odds of that and take a bite of the cookie does it taste like a pork cookie motherfucker i don't think so 
What's, oh, it tastes like figs. Fucking interesting, that, isn't it? But right. this is the opposite of, of putting your, a distance between the right. comedy and yourself and putting a distance, I think, between the audience and, like, like you know, anybody. I, I don't know. It would be interesting to hear from lis- listeners, but I, I don't know, like, if, his, if that's as funny if you didn't also have a child. I mean, it's, it's pointing to this in some ways, even though he's making fun of his daughter. It, to me, it strikes me as he's, he's, he's admitting a certain vulnerability that parents often just don't want to admit. One of the things you notice if you get to be a certain age and you, you, your friends start having kids is how fucking highly they think of their kids. <laughs> right? right. And some people are just like, my kid could do no wrong. And, you know, they're posting their achievements, big upping their kids. And the truth of the matter is, you know, like my daughter's fine. I love her to death, but she would do the same shit, like arguing with me. Yeah. And I'd be like, the balls on this little kid. <laughs> like, she would argue about song lyrics all the time with me. You know, like she would mishear a song lyric. She'd yeah. be like, no, that's what it says. So it's funny that a, like there, this is another famous theory is the incongruity theory. So I think what you just said is normally people are just, their kids, they're just praising their kids to the, to the sky. And so somebody who just kind of trashes his kid, while at the same time, like, you, you know how deeply he loves his kid, but just trashes his kid, has an incongruous element to it. And also, like, we can all relate because nobody has had a child and not had that kind of conversation. But then the <laughs> final, like, awesome element of that is I still can act like that. Like, I'll still insist that I'm right about something with just no basis for it. I think we, right. we all can be in, just because you're in that mood. On, on every level, it's sort of exposing something, but without ever feeling like he's placing himself above. This is, and I take it this is what you were saying about the one-liners, is that you don't need to know Stephen Wright to, to understand the one-liners, Right. But there is a deeper kind of of hilarity that's less of an intellectual sort of like a like a you know take a pun as the classic example of something right. that some people consider is funny, but just because of the little intellectual tickle that it gives you. Right. But when a comedian is is sort of makes themselves vulnerable in a certain way, you then read, you see the humility even in the mock arrogance that condemnation of others. You you. And and for some reason that's funny. This is I mean I'm not not me commenting on the moral character of of George Carlin or Louis C.K. For all I know, Louis C.K. in person is an asshole. But as a as a performer, I think that it is extra hilarious to see him complain about his kids or deer, which is a clip that I won't play now in the interest of time. But but you know he rants about how he hates deer. Um, in a way that just wouldn't be funny if George Carlin did it. Because we already know George Carlin thinks he's better than most people. Right. <laughs> like, I want to like the people in a comedy. You know, I was yeah. trying to think of movies. And there's a certain kind of movie that's just absurd or a gross-out movie or something like that where it's like there are disgusting things. And I have no issue with absurdity and no issue with disgusting or gross-out humor. But I need to also like the characters in there right so like a teen sex gross out comedy 
I'm fine with that if there's some if there's something to latch on to that's that's more sort of personal. Like so a good example of two good examples I think of this are like Super Bad and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. They're they're both like you know kind of stoner comedies and also they they have their disgusting elements to it and their offensive inappropriate elements. But there's also this like friendship that that's at the bottom of it and that makes you just like the characters. And there's something vulnerable about the character. It's, it's so, you know, the scene in in Superbad where they're, you know, in the sleeping bag next to each other and telling each other how much they love. Should have told you that Oh, I didn't. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I should be sorry. I was being a dick. I was being a big dick to you. No, I, I listen, Seth. I want you to know I don't want to live with Fogel. I don't want to live with him. I just don't. I, I, I'm afraid to live with strangers. I love you. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I'm not even embarrassed to say it. I just... I, I love you. I'm not embarrassed. Love you. I love you. It's like, why don't we say that every day? Why can't we say it more often? I just love you. I just want to go to the rooftops and scream, I love my best friend, Evan. We should go up on my roof. For sure. Like when you went away for Easter on your vacation... I missed you. I missed you too. I want the world to know. It's 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 the most beautiful thing in the world. It's funny because you can relate to having loved a friend and not and there's this layer of social social norms that says says you can't do it and so the fact that they just go straight to the affection it's kind of hilarious. It's not on its own at all right. because it's pointing out like, hey, you've probably had these feelings for a same-sex friend of love and affection. And isn't it funny that and you can't like it? And also like loss and fear. Yeah. You're yeah. going to different colleges now. He's going to like a better college. And, you know, what am I going to do? That's, yeah, that's totally relatable even if. And so when and, you have and, that core, you can have the absurd characters on the side. And if it's not, yeah, if it's not, if it's not somehow true and it's like communicating to you that there is, there is truth there either, uh, then it's, it's not as funny to me. Um, I mean, I mean true and like, not to get too philosophical, but, but, but true in this, in this deep sense, like they're pointing out something very painful and, and it's, and maybe this gets to another theory of humor, sort of tension relief model of humor that that what humor is doing is it's sort of releasing a buildup of nervous energy i don't think that that can account for why a lot of things are funny there's a lot of tension that never i don't know never there's a kind of humor that that like yeah i agree the sort of the black comics that focus on the black experience i think they provide a way to talk about it with, without just being too overwhelmed with despair. Patrice O'Neill is a great, is really good at this. The, the big one is Chappelle. And, and Chappelle, yeah, I was going to say uh, there's a great, uh, I'll put a link to it, but there is a really great, um, uh, it's an episode of a TV show called Iconoclasts. 
it was like on the Sundance channel or something. It's like where, where, where two famous people have a conversation with each other, like one interviews another. They got Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle together. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a great, but at the end, there's something that he says about, about race humor. He wouldn't mind if his son became a comedian when he grows up. He just hopes that maybe jokes about race won't be funny. Right. And they and they will stop being funny if people weren't weren't racist, because then you'd just be an ass. You know, you'd be (laughs) what's the deal with black people? Again, there's that kind of deep pain that comes out. Richard Pryor. Right. You know, you get the sense that his comedy is I mean, I guess this is true of a lot of comedians, but it comes from a source of such deep inner pain. Yeah. Uh, and you know, again, it's not that it's not funny. It is. It's very funny. But that's what that's the that's the incredible like line is that you juxtapose the pain and the comedy and you, uh, yeah, you get it. It's it's something about like when a comedian gets up there and they say something. It feel Richard Pryor felt honest. Yeah, the best comedian is going to be up there and and just converting that pain into into anecdotes. Thing. you don't want to be superior to the comic either it's not right. that they're making you feel better about your life they're making you feel better about the pain that you also experience <laughs> or you like, know I, not to keep mentioning louise k obviously everybody knows we love him but when he's talking about having sex and looking at his own belly and just being yeah. disgusted at himself like, that's just so <laughs> you're right we're not making fun of louise k we're we're like we're agreeing that you know seeing yourself naked is just not a very disappointing <laughs> i put that's why i put blankets over all the mirrors when i jerk off <laughs> like um, like uh shiva you know <laughs> is that what is that what shiva is i will say that two of my favorite like works of what i think of our comic genius don't seem to fit into those categories and i, I have just a an inkling as to why but the first one is eddie murphy's from Eddie Murphy, Delirious, The Barbecue. That bit is my favorite comic bit of all time. I've probably heard it 50 times in my life, just in preparing for it today. But I don't totally relate to it because I didn't have that kind of family. I didn't have the, you know, just like, so there is this kind of absurdity of the father getting up and and just like, just for no reason, just belligerently (laughs) claiming his house and then just insulting, just rabidly insulting every member of his family. Then my pops would start talking. And my pops would be fucked up every 4th of July, man, every cookout. Black men like to claim the house when they're drunk. Men, period, I think, man, like to just claim their house. They want you to know if you're drunk and if they're drunk and you're in their house, that is their house. My father stand up in the middle of the cookout and say, it's my house. You know what it is? And if you don't like it, you get the fuck out. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. I pay the motherfucking bills in this motherfucker. And hey, kiss my ass if you don't like it. Yes. Yes, motherfucking yes. But you know what it is? You know what it is? I'm drunk. So what? Beautiful. I'm drunk. I'm drunk. So what? I'm drunk. You know what? I got drunk in my motherfucking kitchen. I, I was drinking out of my glass in my motherfucking house. So fuck it. But I think what's so great about that, you know, just aside from the sort of absurdity and the 
in the comedy of the situation is just the virtuosity that he has in that like he's doing like seven different voices and you know sound effects with the aunt falling down the stairs and this totally this tour de force about his theory about the wife and why she's so big and hairy all the and, and and like the shoe and like all these things are going on that it's it's just this you know there is a kind of comedy and Louis C.K. is not like this Bill Burr is not like this uh, a lot, most of my favorite comics aren't like this where it's just the virtuosity of the performance is, is a big part of what makes it brilliant and I think that's true also of my second like my favorite comic scenes of all time like at least three of my top ten are from Pink Panther movies and that's just from the virtuosity of Peter Sellers comic performance in them. It's not that I relate to Clouseau. I relate I relate to the sort of people being, you know, the the the, the arrogance is inversely proportional to their accomplishments or what they're doing at the moment, but it's I think it's like the it's just I'm just in awe of how good the they are. Right. Just like the other thing I was going to say about that Eddie Murphy uh bit though is it's not just his technical prowess, but there is something in the art of telling a story. Yes, exactly. That Good. is yeah, just, right. yeah, and some comedians can just tell a great story. It's just, um, and sometimes good joke telling is really good storytelling. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right. You, that is a perfectly crafted story. It's not just the sound effects, different voices, all that stuff. But it is a perfectly developed story the way it builds. Right. And you get the and to get the timing down and all that stuff. When to introduce the character that says this and that. You know, and I and I think that we probably we probably don't realize how much goes into preparing something like that. I heard an interview with Chris Rock who toured with him on the Delirious Tour, just was with him. Didn't mm-hmm. uh maybe maybe opened a couple of shows, but he was very young, but he said that all he did was work and practice and hone every moment. And yeah, like it seemed, you know, especially Eddie Murphy and Delirious with that red leather jacket. Over, <laughs> yeah. like, over, that makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't yeah, give I the mean, impression of someone who's just a perfectionist about his craft. You know, like that's just <laughs> part, not part of the persona. But, but you know, gone are the days when when comedians would choose to wear... Such stylish leather on the <laughs> and the red leather pants. <laughs> yeah, so and he's just sweating, and I'm like, that ha- that has to be uncomfortable. What I was going to get to is is when I and I guess the Pink Panther might be in this category, and that's slapstick humor, which I really just I I've never maybe when I was a little kid things like the Three Stooges were funny, but it ended really quickly, and I've I've found it actually hard. I remember. Uh, Paul Bloom and his lecture on humor was trying to come up with film clips of examples of, of things that were funny. And he put up this clip of Mr. Bean. And oh, I was like, yeah. Oh my God, that is just so not funny. Yeah. It was no. so, so not funny. No, no, no. I agree. I like, I agree for the most part. So like, I'm not a, like, I think the three students are idiotic. I, yeah. Mr. Bean or Benny Hill or like, <laughs> you know, like it's just almost comically not funny. You know, even the Marx Brothers, I, I yeah. like, but I don't love. You know, like uh, you know. Yeah, no, no. I was thinking, and I the like same their thing. verbal stuff more than the slapstick stuff. But there is the the Pink Panther. It just all comes together for me. Again, I, 
I, I, part of it is his character, which the slapstick isn't enough. And this, I think when Steve Martin, whose work I, I tend to like, one of the most atrocious abominations is him <laughs> doing it. Because right. Peter Sellers had mastered this sort of, this kind of character who is, he, he is so condescending to all the people around him. And that's juxtaposed with him being absurdly clumsy. It's also... And I will say uh, this, that that there is a way in which... And you could see this, you know, even in um, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, Peter Sellers had this amazing way of using his body for right. for comedy. And it can be very subtle. You don't have to overdo it. Like Robin Williams often, I, I think, overdid it. And uh, Although in some movies he was, he was subtle. Um, those are tend not to be the comic one. Is there a really funny Robin Williams movie? Patch Adams. <laughs> Awakening. Um, but you know who was, I, I guess I would never have called it slapstick, but a, who was brilliant at using her body for humor was Lucille Ball. Oh, yeah. In the, in the Lucy shows. You know, you're not, it's, you would, I, at least I would never categorize her as a slapstick comedian at all, but her yeah. willingness to, to use her, to make, to use her body to make herself vulnerable in, in sub to comedic effect was, was just admirable. And, and, you know, no, but, but that wasn't primarily slapstick was sort of a, it, the cherry on top of that show. But it yeah. was very much about the, her personal frustrations. Right. And as you say, you, it's funny when you build up a character, and you, you know, you make him arrogant. Mr. Bean, it's like, what, what is he? I don't even know what he is. And, and, you know, the great thing about Peter Sellers is he's always, you know, it's not that he doesn't recognize when he's fallen down or when he's gone the wrong way, but he tries to justify it by, you know, or he'll try right. to justify walking the wrong way by pretending he was <laughs> observing the museum or, you know, like, and, and there's just nothing that he can do right. Like he presses a doorbell and the doorbell will just not stop ringing. All right. Uh, All right we should wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to say one thing, and we won't spend too much time in it. I just can't get into potty humor and disgusting humor, and I find I'm perplexed constantly. Maybe, maybe you're not, but but there are a bunch of examples of scenes in movies that people just report that they thought they were brilliant. Did you see Bridesmaids? You know, I didn't. Yeah, well, it's not. You don't have to, but there's a scene where they all just get like food poisoning and they have diarrhea and. That's right. the scene is like they're all in fancy dresses and they have to like take shits. And I, that's not funny to me. I don't, it's, it's, it puzzles me that people like it so much. Probably that's probably your germophobia. But, <laughs> yeah. but again, if I, again, I, I don't know, I didn't see bridesmaids, but sometimes when something is, is just disgusting for the sake of being disgusting without some further purpose, then yeah. I agree with you. you yeah. Know? Like, uh, and so, but like, here's an example of where I think, where I don't mind it. I think it, it is kind of funny is in Super Bad, where he dances with the girl. She, she, she's having her period and that just gets on his jeans <laughs> and it's this big blood stain on his jeans. But that's funny. If it was just that, it wouldn't be funny. What's funny about it is for the first time, he's like acting kind of cool and dancing <laughs> with a kind of hot girl and like things are going well. And, you know, this is a guy who's constantly sexually frustrated. And finally, everything's going according to, like, a, a perfect plan, you know. And that's where it actually happens. All right. So, 
we don't have any grand theory of of humor, but we like to keep it that way. Yeah, maybe at some future point we'll talk about benign violation theory and some of the actual theories. But right now, we're just getting off our our thoughts, our reflections. Yes. Join us next time.